The big three colonizers of the New World, the English, French, and Spanish, all had different thoughts on how the task ought to be carried out. The French and Spanish were governed by autocratic sovereigns, whose rule remained absolute. Thus, their colonists went to America as servants of the crown. England also had a monarch sitting upon their throne, but at the moment of colonization differed from their European peers. That was because of a prior combination of King John's inability to perform the basic tasks necessary to govern, plus the chaos that had emerged out of the wars between Protestants King Henry VIII and Elizabeth facing off against Catholics such as Queen Bloody Mary. The resulting bedlam produced an English civil war, which in turn then gave way to a glorious revolution, which saw Parliament take the reins of power. Due to the democratic decision-making inherent to all legislative branches, the English settlers of the New World enjoyed far more freedom, enabling them to govern themselves as they saw fit, so long as they upheld basic English law while maintaining the appearance of loyalty to the king. Considering that all three European nations unleashed mass atrocities upon their arrival to the New World, it's hard to say which colonizer had the best formula for expanding their reach to the Americas. But just because a debate is difficult to figure out doesn't mean that we won't try to express our opinion upon the subject. Personally, I typically side with the French on the question of whose colonization methods were the least harmful. Rather than permanent settlements, Paris sought to establish trading posts along the major seaways of Canada and along the Mississippi River. That means that economic reasons were at the forefront of their decision-making concerning their voyages across the Atlantic. It also meant that there wasn't ever an explosion of French-speaking citizens in the New World. Those that came didn't bring their families with. Instead, they came over, made their money, and then cashed out in order to return home. In 1672, there were fewer than 5,000 French colonists. By 1734, it had risen to only 40,000 in Canada. In contrast, the English favored its citizens traveling to the new lands, encouraging this with the pull of economic independence, as well as the push of religious intolerance at home. In 1627, there were only 1,000 Brits in Virginia, the most populous of the 13 colonies. By 1754, however, there were more than 1.5 million Englishmen spread out across the eastern seaboard. Although they initially worked with the indigenous people, oftentimes depending upon them for their survival, the English soon took on the attitude that they had discovered the land that they were now residing upon, and thus pursued policies that ruthlessly pushed the natives off of their traditional lands. The English sense of righteousness often came from the fact that numerous settlements were created out of religious motivations, with the colonists believing that it was only through the divine intervention of God's will that they had seized the land from the local heathens. The Spanish were similarly motivated by God, 
That was one of the three Gs, which are commonly cited as the impetus behind the Spanish-funded journeys of Christopher Columbus, Ferdinand Magellan, and Hernán Cortés. That last name is synonymous with the Conquistadors, a unique group of warriors which hailed from the Iberian Peninsula. Their presence, rather than Christian missionaries, traders, or settlers, tells us exactly what Spain hoped to do in the New World. It has long been known that if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem will look like a nail. Sending in the conquistadors guaranteed that mass genocide would follow in their wake. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the New World conquests of the conquistador Hernán Cortés. Episode number one, A Conqueror's Rise. The social class known as the Conquistadors came about as a result of the failures of European feudalism. The manorial system, as it was also known, ensured that power derived directly from land ownership. The king owned all of the nation, but passed off control of portions of it to loyalists, who in turn allowed the serfs, or peasants, to live slash work on their land in order to survive. The entire thing resembles a modern-day pyramid scheme, with taxes, through the donation of the food-slash-service that the serfs provided, passed upwards through the pyramid all the way to the king. It's a fine system, except for the fact that there was no way for serfs to improve their station in life. Working for the benefit of your lord five days a week didn't leave enough time for you to build up a surplus of sellable products particularly since the other two days out of the week were spent farming for your own dinner. Perpetual poverty for the lower classes, which in some ways was the goal of feudalism, was achieved when you added in the fact that peasants had to rent their work tools from the Lord. One of the most exciting social classes to come out of feudalism were the knights. We all have an image in our head regarding knights as great warriors who lived according to a code of chivalry. The concept wasn't unique to England, as samurai followed the Bushido Code, a similar honor system which had developed within Japanese feudal society independent of European influence. Historian Jennifer Goodman Woolick doesn't share our positive thoughts regarding the supposedly chivalric knights of the Middle Ages as she describes them as hired thugs. Further noting that knights were heavily armed and prone to violence, much in the same way that a heavy tank is today. Feudalism fed their violent acts, as knights were rewarded with land or licensed to plunder the villages after the battle was over. Convincing the knighthood to adopt chivalry was an attempt to rein in the violence that came with the overpowered warriors. A knight's superpowers derived from their suits of armor, 
which were absurdly expensive, artificially limiting the amount of individuals that could be added to the social class. But as feudalism begrudgingly gave way to mercantilism, the knightly class slowly died off, the last of whom became like the fictional Spanish character of Don Quixote, wandering aimlessly across the countryside tilting at windmills. A number of knights in Spain jumped off the ship before she sank, shedding the code of chivalry to become conquistadors, a new social class that was once again arbitrarily limited by birthright. Historian Christopher Minister notes that the conquistadors typically came from families ranging from the poor to the lower nobility. The very highborn rarely needed to set off in search of adventure. Conquistadors had to have some money to purchase the tools of their trade, such as weapons, armor, and horses. Many of them were veteran professional soldiers who had fought for Spain in other wars, like the reconquest of the Moors or the Italian Wars. Many happened to be second or third born sons, who in the 1500s would have been cut off from their inheritance in order to preserve the size of the land owned by the firstborn son. After all, the feudal system derived power from land. Constant divisions for the sake of inheritance slowly whittled away the foundation of the nobility, allowing the merchant class to pass them on the final turn. For these second and third born sons, conquering the new world offered them the chance to live a life as rich as their older brother. Although they would kill without hesitation, the conquistadors weren't mere mercenaries. They fought at the behest of the king of Spain, and subsequently were required to turn over one-fifth of all loot gained. They were also well-educated, with historian Greg Beyer noting that most conquistadors had received a special education in mathematics, theology, writing, Latin, Greek, and history after they joined. Such an education was seen as necessary for future upward mobility, meaning that they viewed their time as a conqueror as temporary. They justified their violence through their strongly held belief in Catholicism, as they were joined by numerous Dominican and Franciscan friars, who accompanied the conquistadors in order to convert the indigenous peoples of the Americas. The presence of men of the cloth allowed the conquerors to continually cleanse their souls through the Catholic belief in confession. Thus, they were able to kill with impunity. Hernán Cortés was born in 1484 in Medellín, a town along the boundary of Spain and Portugal. Historian Frederick Ober notes that he was born to poverty, but could boast descent from most distinguished ancestry as the son of a retired captain of the Spanish army. The province of his birth, Extremadura, was a hotbed for conquistador recruitment. Historian Frank McLinn details the significance of his birthplace for us, stating, Firstly, he absorbed violence almost with his mother's milk, 
as Extremadura was a hotbed of the stasis or strife that racked the Kingdom of Castile in the late 15th century. A sustained struggle for land and castles often waged by people within the same extended family, which spilled over into outright civil war in the 1470s. Secondly, Extremadura turned out to be the cradle of the conquistadors, producing such renowned figures as Orlana, de Sota, Balboa, Vavidia, and the Pizarro brothers. Cortez's father was a Hidalgo, the Spanish term for a nobleman by birth, who had made his living as a soldier of fortune. Unfortunately, the loot that had come in the aftermath of the Reconquista wasn't enough to propel the family into the upper echelons of society. Still, it was sufficient to allow Hernan to study Latin with a personal tutor from a nearby university. There isn't much known about Cortez's childhood, with most biographies merely describing him as sickly. His parents intended for him to become a lawyer, but he had far grander ambitions and ultimately used his formalized education of the legal code to justify his illegal conquest of the Aztec Empire. It was when he was 16 years old, two years into his training for a career as a lawyer, that he became aware of the fantastic stories of a new world, discovered by Spain via the Italian explorer Christopher Columbus. Life in a small town had begun to grate on the young man who during this time in his life is described in his autobiography as ruthless, haughty, mischievous, and quarrelsome. Dropping out of school before achieving his degree, he wandered around the countryside of Spain, seemingly adrift. Somewhere around the age of 17, he decided that the new world would be where he would make a name for himself. As one possible theory for his sudden departure suggests that rather than running towards grandeur, he was fleeing from a mounting list of troubles. This included an incident where he was badly injured after having been chased out of a second-story window by a girl's father. Unfortunately for the young man, he was hurt so badly that he was left off the voyage list of 35 ships that sailed for the New World. Having seemingly missed his chance, Ober tells us that he proposed enlisting in the Spanish army bound for Italy. His father and mother freely gave their consent. They were, in truth, inclined to the belief that, after all, military training, and especially its discipline, might be good for the wayward boy, whose midnight and other adventures were already becoming the talk of the town. He never actually enlisted, however, due to the unfortunate fact that he contracted malaria around the time of departure. Rarely do we get third chances in life. After all, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. He managed to secure passage to the New World at the age of 22, not as a famous soldier, but as a notary, for which McLinn notes that a law degree was desirable, but not essential. Ober states that the voyage was an unfortunate one for all concerned, 
the vessel in which he took passage having been blown off of her course, dismasted, buffeted by adverse winds, and nearly wrecked by tempests. Despite the adversity, the seemingly unlucky young man arrived safely to the city of Santo Domingo, which is in the modern-day nation of Haiti. There, he was taken under the wing of Nicolas de Ovando, another export from Cortez's home province of Spain. Although he had already shown a propensity for discovering trouble, one wonders what would have become of Cortez if he had found a different mentor. After all, Ober informs us that Ovando was initially not in his office when Hernan first called upon him, having instead gone out to barbarically hunt natives with Spanish mastiffs, gigantic dogs that were trained to battle besides the conquistadors of Spain. Based upon his noble Hidalgo status, which mattered more to the old guard than the amount of money in one's pockets, Hernán Cortés was granted a small parcel of land, from which he hoped to mine gold. Of course, the actual task of mining would fall to a cadre of native slaves which were assigned to him. But no matter who did the work, the plot of land turned out to be fool's gold, for the mines had already been exhausted which led Cortez to beg, Senor Secretario, know that I came here to get gold and not to cultivate the soil like a peasant. But faced with no other choices, he settled into the life of a slaveholder and small plantation owner, making most of his living over the next five years through his labor as a notary. During that time, he worked closely with a man named Diego Velasquez, another despicable Spaniard who, according to Ober, once with little provocation, gave the order for thousands to be butchered in the plaza of the Indian town. Forty chiefs were either hanged or burned alive, while women, babes, and children were murdered in cold blood. The artless and innocent female ruler known as the Golden Flower was taken to Santo Domingo, where, after a pretense of trial, she was hanged in the plaza of the capital and her remains thrown to the dogs. Velasquez and Cortez quickly became inseparable friends. The two remained close as they both simultaneously rose within the New World social scene. The bromance was real, resulting in them moving together to the island of Cuba, where alongside 300 soldiers, the two managed to quell a large section of local indigenous Taino people. Soon afterwards, Velasquez went into politics, and Cortez struck Cuban gold, allowing for the purchase of an extensive hacienda plantation. Predictably, however, there were problems between the two alphas. McLynn writes that there was a row over the treatment of local Indians. Velasquez was a Catholic paternalist, but Cortez wanted greater control over his indigenous peons, reducing them in effect to a form of serfdom. The dispute became so bitter that Velasquez at first ordered Hernán's arrest. But a weak and indulgent man, he soon pardoned his protege. 
but in 1515, Cortes crossed a line that no respectable Hidalgo apparently crosses, seducing an upper-class girl on the promise of marriage before withdrawing it after he got the so-called milk for free. Outraged at his friend's lack of chivalry, Velasquez forced his protege to marry the girl, an act that produced a truly miserable marriage, one that resulted in no children, unless you count the coup attempt that was conceived in its wake. Turning on his friend, Hernán Cortés entered into the world of dark arts to conspire an overthrow. But the plot was discovered, and Cortés soon became a political prisoner in a Cuban jail. He escaped. After all, the prison had been built hastily by conquistadors who were each solely concerned with violent get-rich-quick schemes. Now a fugitive, he took shelter in a Catholic church, the faith that he, like all Spaniards of this era, claimed as his own. He was soon captured and placed in double irons, destined to be shipped off to Haiti. I'll let O'Burr tell what comes next, as it feels straight out of an old Zorro film. The Spanish historian tells us that he escaped a second time, and plunging overboard at the risk of his life, swam to shore, regained his sanctuary in the church, and defied arrest. Having secured a sword and a suit of armor in a spirit of bravado, one evening Cortez left his chosen refuge and suddenly appeared before Velasco's in his own apartment at the palace. The governor was unarmed, and being at the mercy of the man he had offended, he was compelled to listen to that man's estimate of his character. The two held a hot discussion, but finally, the humor of the situation appealing to Velasquez and the feeling of old companionship asserting itself, he proffered a reconciliation. Cortez promptly fell into his arms, and they embraced like brothers. When shortly after, a messenger arrived with the news of the prisoner's escape, that fugitive was found, it was said, sleeping in the governor's bed. The joyous reunion was a carefully orchestrated act. As McLynn informs us that Cortez had learnt to control his temper and smile, even while he plotted treachery. Still, our Spaniard did well for himself during his second chance in Cuba, well enough that he easily could have lived a life that was forgotten long ago. During this period of time, he introduced the concept of choice cattle to the island, and was the first to have his slaves begin mining copper. He continued to be a womanizer, which was something that Velasquez learned to tolerate under the belief that Hernán was, in every other way, a devout adherent to Catholicism. We don't have any details as to how many slaves he maintained or any knowledge regarding their quality of life. Cortez himself on the subject stated that God alone can render a proper accounting of how many died while in his care. It was during this time that the unique Spanish element of gold fever struck Hernán. 
who is a perfect example of the historical statement that the conquistadors and other European explorers were after the three G's. Gold, glory, and God. Yet what followed was genocide, greed, and grief. In 1508, an expedition had failed to colonize the Yucatan Peninsula, which had first been sighted by Europeans 12 years earlier. Only the captain and a handful of others survived the initial encounter as half of the crew's 110 met their end violently in what is described as a handful of battles. Ten years later, in 1518, a second expedition landed and interacted with the natives, from whom they received gold in exchange for cut glass. It was the men on this expedition that were first introduced to the word Mexico. Despite not fully understanding the local language, the Europeans were given the clear impression that somewhere far off into the west was an empire filled with gold, El Dorado. The gifts granted by what turned out to be emissaries from the Aztec emperor Montezuma were known to have included 20,000 coins and 600 golden hatchets, which disappointingly turned out to be merely made of copper. Hearts aflush with the discovery, the Spanish were suddenly ready to try their hands at conquering the Yucatan again. Cortes signed up to lead. It was a mission that had been sanctioned by and for the benefit of Spanish King Charles I. Accordingly, the mission was to seize all new lands, discover and populate new territories in the service of God, and share in any profits obtained. Knowing Hernan's prior indiscretions, Velasquez added one additional rule, proclaiming that the Spanish were to completely abstain from having sex with any indigenous women. Cortes spent a small fortune preparing for the expedition. In fact, he spent so much that Velasquez soon became worried. Unspoken thoughts soon turned to questions which settled upon the answer that Hernán Cortés had been pretending to placate him. McLinn informs us that finally alerted by spies about Cortés's disloyal talk and the scale of his preparations, Velázquez typically dithered too long before moving decisively against his so-called friend. By the time he decided to replace Cortés as leader of the expedition, or possibly even halted altogether, Cortes was already on his way. Not funny was the fact that Hernán Cortes personally fatally stabbed the messenger before hiding away the written orders that removed him from command. Hilarious, however, was the fact that Velázquez personally raced down to the port in order to stop him, only to arrive in time to shout at the ship as it was leaving the harbor to which Cortes merely responded with something along the lines of, Don't worry, I've got this.
the expedition consisted of 530 Europeans, 30 of which were armed with crossbows and 12 very early and inefficient rifles. They also had 14 pieces of light artillery, 16 horses, and a large number of mastiffs. Showcasing the rushed departure, the 11 ships only had enough food and wine for a two-week voyage, and barely enough drinking water. They landed a few miles distant from Cozumel, along the northeast coast of the Yucatan. Ten months earlier, emissaries from the Aztec ruler had met with a group of Spaniards, participating in peaceful trade. During these interactions, it had become known that there were prisoners from the prior expedition. Cortez's first action was to seek their freedom. The first prisoner that they approached refused, choosing instead to stay with his native wife and their three children, reportedly stating, Lo, I have three sons. I'm a leader and a war chief. My face is tattooed. My ears and nose are bored. What would those Spaniards think of me? The second captive, however, turned out to be Cortez's single most valuable find in the New World. That man was Father Geronimo de Aguilar, and Ober notes for us that he had been so long with the Indians, seven years, that he had nearly lost his native speech. But he carried with him the remnants of a book of prayers tied in a ragged bundle at his waist, and kept repeating as though fearful of forgetting the few Spanish words he remembered, Dios, God, Santa Maria, and Sevilla. He soon recovered his lost language, and as he also spoke the Maya, or native tongue of Yucatan, he proved to be the greatest acquisition the expedition had received. The missionaries celebrated the return of their countrymen by going up to the nearest Mayan temples in order to roll their idols over the sides in order to affix Christian crosses there. The Christian symbol had some significance to the Mayans, likely representing their rain god. Thus, Cortes claimed to have quote-unquote converted the first heathens that he had come across. But the Mayan civilization was far past their golden age by this point in time. Indeed, as the Cortez expedition reboarded their ships to sail further up the coast, they would have passed the remains of the great temples of the Mayans, which had already by this point been reclaimed by the jungle. Indeed, centuries were to pass before the walls of Chichen and Itza would be discovered by archaeologists for the Mayan sun had already given way to the blazing glory that was, for the moment, the Aztec Empire. His second stop in Mexico wasn't as hospitable as Cozumel had been, as the people living within the Tabasco River Valley met him with slurs and arrows. Evidently, they had been chastised by their Aztec overlords for how they had interacted peacefully with the previous Spanish expedition. Given a second opportunity, they decided to actively seek out the destruction of the foreign invaders. Ober details the dog and pony show that the Spaniards trotted out against their opposition 
before committing mass murder, telling us that the royal notary read a proclamation to this effect, that the Spaniards merely desired to land their ships for wood and water, to secure the submission of the natives to their sovereign and the prompt acceptance of their religion. This proclamation was one that had been used many times before, for it had been formulated by learned men at court and given to all the conquerors. Setting aside, however, the fact that the natives might not be desiring to accept offhand a new religion and new gods and profess allegiance to a king to whom they have never heard before, another objection was that it was read in Spanish, a language they did not understand and amid the deafening din of horns and trumpets. Then, seeing that the stupid natives neither respected the king's command nor the pro-offers of the priests, Cortes gave the battle cry. Rather than a quick slaughter, this battle, against perhaps as many as 30 to 40,000 indigenous peoples, took place over the better part of two days. Ober informs us that great guns from the vessels were landed, and their thunderous roar drowned the terrific shouts of the Indians, who were amazed, almost stupefied, at the noise and the terrible carnage. But they bravely stood their ground, ever filling the gaps made in their ranks by the plunging cannonballs and throwing dust and straw into the air to conceal their losses. They withstood the cannon, strange and terrible as they appeared to them. But the prancing horses struck terror to their hearts. When they appeared, the Indians, to the estimated number of 30 to 40,000, had gathered on a great plain behind their town, which had been occupied by the infantry. While the muskets and bowmen engaged them in front, Cortez, with a few choice sprints, made a detour and came upon the enemy in the rear. Historian Jared Diamond won the Pulitzer Prize for articulating better than anyone the guns, germs, and steel explanation for how so few Spaniards were able to defeat such a large enemy host. We'll explore that theory in much greater detail in our fifth and final episode, as the theory doesn't fully explain the Spanish victory at Tabasco. After all, it takes time for germs to spread. There were only a few guns, and Ober specifically notes that the Indians held ranks. And steel can only do so much against so many. Although in this particular battle, javelins and spears were said to have rained down upon the helm and corset of Hernan Cortez, who merely lost a sandal during the fighting. Rather than guns, germs, and steel, then, both Ober and McLinn point to the 14 horses as the principal difference maker in the conflict. This moment was the first time that the indigenous peoples of the Yucatan had seen a horse, as they had been first domesticated in the Arabian Peninsula and had only been recently shipped across the Atlantic to the European settlements. To the natives, they were a creature out of horror stories, as the Spanish armor which covered the rider's legs convinced their enemies that the beast and rider were one entity. 
In their minds, they were monsters sent to devour and destroy their very souls. The two historians agree, however, with Diamond about the importance of writing to the success of the Spaniards. Each interaction with the Spaniards felt like a first encounter for the natives. Meanwhile, the Europeans took to the task of building out the psychological profile of the native inhabitants. Each subsequent expedition collected knowledge as to what the natives liked, disliked, and how different stimuli caused them to react. The notes weren't always perfect, but it gave them enough insight to predict likely behaviors. And that knowledge made the difference over the two days in Cortez's fight against the Tabascans. It is believed that more than 1,000 Tabascans were killed to only a handful of Spanish deaths. One-fifth of the conquistadors did pick up a wound, however, showcasing that the danger in the New World was in fact very real to these near-godlike figures. With the host subdued, the Spaniards again went with their horse and pony show, as line 14 of his royal charter read, Take great care to instruct the natives in the true faith, as this is the principal reason why their highnesses permit these discoveries. Historians have no clue what word to use to describe the human trafficking that sent over women to the victors. The sources that I utilized tend to describe it as the Spanish receiving 20 women as a victory gift, as well as a number of locally sourced products. The women were quickly baptized and taken aboard to be spread around amongst Cortez's Catholic officers. Their ship was hailed by a new indigenous group shortly after having left Tabasco. It was a small canoe with Aztec natives who spoke an entirely different language from the Mayans which they had encountered. Cortez had brought one of the survivors from the previous expedition to serve as a translator, but he had deserted in the midst of the prior battle, literally taking off his Spanish clothes and hanging them in a tree before zipping off into the jungles of southern Mexico, but naked. Thankfully, one of the 20 women that had been forcibly brought on board the ships happened to be a natural linguist who had been previously sold by her parents to the Mayans. It just so happened that the Aztec language was her mother tongue. Thus, she translated the words of the Aztecs into Mayan, so that Father Geronimo could then translate it to Spanish. McLinn tells us that Marina soon became indispensable to her new master, who made her his mistress and added her to the informal harem he had begun to assemble. Her loyalty to Cortez was absolute, and eventually she bore him a son named Martin. Now armed with the knowledge that he was on the correct path to the kingdom of gold, the Spanish conquistadors continued sailing off the coast of Mexico. Thousands of eyes followed their every move from the cover of the jungle. How the great Aztec nation responded to the incursion by these foreigners would determine whether their civilization would survive. 
We will examine Montezuma's decision in depth in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.